Hey everyone, this is Yvette Hampton. Welcome back to the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. I am here this week with Adam Andrews from Center for Lit. And I know so many of you are already familiar with him. And you may remember I had his lovely wife, Missy, on the podcast. She's been on a couple of times and she's fantastic. And so it's been so fun getting to know their family. Um, I remember hearing Adam give a seminar years and years ago on reading and and how to teach our children to read and comprehend. And and we're going to talk about all those things this week. We're talking about literature. Um, And, you know, literature is one thing. I grew up not reading many books. And it wasn't until I got into my homeschool years with my kids that I started to discover the importance of reading and not reading just anything but reading good literature. And so we love reading in our home now. We read a lot and I read a lot more now than I ever did. And it is so great. It is so rewarding. So Adam's going to talk about those things with us this week. But before we get started, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, CTC Math. If you guys are looking for a great online math program, visit ctcmath.com. Try them out for free, ctcmath.com. Well, Adam, welcome to the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. I'm so glad to have the other side of the Andrews uh, couple. (laughs) Um, Introduce yourself to us. Talk a little bit about Center for Lent, what you do. Sure. Thank you. It's really good to be with you today. Yeah, I'm Adam Andrews and I'm Missy's husband. That's my main uh, claim to fame and the father of our six children. And uh, we have been homeschoolers. Uh, since the early 90s, we actually just finished, well, a couple of years ago, uh, finished uh, our K-12 education for our last kid, Charlie number six, went through the Andrews Family Homeschool and went off to college. And actually, he just now graduated from college. So it's been a couple of years ago. So we are actually at the end of the homeschool project and along the way have been uh, developing materials and tools to help other homeschool parents sort of travel the same literary road that we have learned to travel in the last few years. And it's been a blessing being able to kind of share what we've learned and some of the mistakes that we've made in the classroom and out with other homeschool families. So that's what we do. And that's kind of what our passion is. Uh, Center for Lit is basically a website full of resources for classroom teachers and homeschool teachers and this subject, literature, Uh, which, you know, sometimes gets the the reputation of being sort of a, a an academic a philosophical subject. But what we, the way we like to think of it is it's the study of great stories that are the the things through which our culture is transmitted from parents to children from one generation to the next. We learn by telling stories. We absorb what's important to our people by by telling stories and listening to stories and being involved in stories. And it turns out in our culture, stories have become an art form that uh, is, on the one hand, extremely beautiful, and on the other hand, can be a little daunting. If you sit down in front of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, for example, a lot of parents or indeed readers of any stripe wonder, how in the world do I read this well and understand it? And one of the things we do at Center for Lit is provide tools to make the understanding of this particular art form easier. Did you grow up as a reader? You know, I mentioned when we when we started that I didn't. Um, I mean, I read some, but really, this is so funny. The books that I remember reading, aside from a few that I was required to read in high school, but I basically remember reading the Ramona series yeah. and the Babysitter's Club series. <laughs> and that was about the extent of my reading in literature as a kid. Did you grow up reading in your home with your family? Well, I have an analogous story. I grew up reading, uh, I climbed up in the attic of my house and found a box of my dad's old books that he used to read when he was a kid. 
from the 1930s and 1940s. And they were the Hardy Boy series by Franklin W. Dixon. Mm. And they were 1940s editions, so the pages were brittle. And when you dog-eared the page, it broke in your hand and it smelled like an attic. And I have wonderful experiences of plowing through Franklin W. Dixon when I was a kid, much in the same way probably that you did Beverly Cleary and the Ramona series. I didn't actually know that Franklin W. Dixon wasn't a real person when I was a kid, that he was just a writing syndicate. And when I learned that, it was sort of a, that was kind of a buzzkill, I guess you could say. But yeah, so I, I definitely grew up reading that kind of stuff. Um, but we, when we were homeschoolers, Missy and I, uh, we got in, uh, involved in uh, giving our kids not only the great stuff that they would love from the picture book level, but also trying to develop a taste uh, in their hearts for great literature for grownups too. And we found actually that giving them a taste for kids' books and teaching them how to read kids' books well and understand them properly actually paves the way pretty effectively for um, for giving them a taste for Shakespeare and Dickens and right. that kind of stuff later on. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I, growing up, and, and our listeners know this, I love the Little House on the Prairie series. Yeah. I love Laura Ingalls. And I never knew growing, I didn't know until after I was married that Laura Ingalls was a real person oh, that and right? that that was a real series. Like I thought it was just a TV show because I loved <laughs> watching the show. I mean, that would, you know, be like saying, you know, all the people in Growing Pains were real people and that was, you know, the, <laughs> their real life. Like right. I just assumed it was just books that, you know, were, or, or a, a TV show that was created for entertainment. Yeah. Of course, much of it is. Sometimes I watch those episodes. I'm like, this is pure garbage. <laughs> There's <laughs> the, That didn't actually happen. But um, but yeah, I, I have learned and I'm still learning to love literature. And so I'm also learning at the same time to teach literature yeah. to my kids. Mm-hmm. And I find that difficult for myself because I think I didn't grow up with that. And I'm still in the process of learning. Sadly, my, my oldest is a senior and I feel like I haven't yet figured it out. I'm still in the process. Those older kids, you know, they're the guinea pigs and I feel so sorry for them. I wish we could have like a practice kid before going through homeschool with them, but, but God is, is faithful. And so it's going to be okay. Yeah. But what do you find to be the best techniques for teaching literature? So for us homeschool moms who are really striving and maybe we didn't grow up as readers and we certainly didn't grow up reading the classics, share with us some of the best techniques for actually teaching literature effectively to our kids. Well, I'm really glad you asked. That's the the question that we spend all of our time at Center for like thinking about and talking about and writing about. And uh, the main thing I have to say in that connection is is actually a very simple idea that I I mention everywhere I go, and that is this: the best way to learn to read even adult literature properly is to notice how children's literature uh, matches adult literature in terms of its shape and its content and its form. In other words, to read kids' books, picture books, easy books, accessible books in the same way that you will someday read the more difficult ones. From a teacher's perspective, this boils down to this, teach kids how to read literature with A Bargain for Francis by Russell Hoban about Mm -hmm. the two badgers who can't get along and teach them how all of the parts of the Bargain for Francis story are the parts of every story. And when you read that and notice how those parts fit together, you will be preparing yourself to notice those very same parts in Shakespeare's Hamlet later. Yeah. And so the habit of mind that you can develop with an easy story that nobody's threatened by will stand you in really good stead later on. It's the number one best technique to use to teach literature to your kids and frankly, to learn it yourself. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's do this. Uh, We need to take a break. I want to take an early break because 
Can you give us like the Cliff Notes version of how to do that? I know you do like a whole probably 45 minute or hour long seminar on that specifically. And that was what I heard from you years and years ago. Can you give us like a condensed version of that when we come back from the break? Sure thing. That would be awesome. Okay, let's take a break. We'll be right back with that. No parent should homeschool alone. You have a God-given calling to bring up your child to love God and to steward His creation. And BJU Press exists to help you be successful in that endeavor. Visit their website at bjupresshomeschool.com or call 1-800-845-5731 to connect with an experienced homeschool consultant. Apologia supports homeschool families with Christ-centered K-12 homeschool curriculum designed to engage your student as they experience the awe and wonder of creation and their creator. Designed by leading scholars with a biblical worldview, Apologia's award-winning curriculum is written in a conversational tone directly to the student to encourage independence. Hands-on activities and experiments help students solidify the concepts they're exploring and build a lifelong love of learning. Visit us at Apologia.com. We are back with Adam. Um, okay, before the break, you're talking. You were talking about a bargain for Francis and how to basically dissect that book and how we can use children's books to learn how to read bigger literature, mm-hmm. right? More advanced literature. Give give us an example of that, um, in maybe like twelve ish minutes or sure. so. I don't know how many of you remember uh, a bargain for Francis. The the two little badgers. Francis goes over to her friend Thelma's house to have a tea party. And while she's there, Thelma, she mentions that she would really like Thelma's tea set. And Thelma kind of swindles her out of the money that she's been saving uh, for a tea set by telling her that the kind she wants doesn't exist anymore. So Francis takes this old yucky tea set and gives Thelma her money. And then Francis realizes that she's been bamboozled out of her money when Thelma goes and buys the tea set that she's always wanted with Francis's money. And so Francis (laughs) has to figure out a way to get her money back and teach Thelma a lesson about friendship. And they have a little resolution at the end, and they're all friends, and they uh, go off into the into the night singing songs about how much better it is to be friends with each other than to steal stuff and put one over on your best friend. <laughs> it's a standard bedtime story at the end of which all eight-year-olds are uh, snuggled in their beds with lessons about morality and the world dancing in their heads. And we read that story and we enjoy it because the Hoban's a great writer and the illustrations are awesome. And we can actually just go to bed after that, sure. if we want. What you could also do is ask a couple of questions about the story related to the structural elements that all stories have in common. You could say, for example, who's the protagonist of this story? Of course, it's Francis the Badger. And you can ask a follow-up question. What does this protagonist want the most in this story? To which the answers will be dependent on the age and, and uh, intellectual maturity of the student or of the person you're discussing with. For example, A five-year-old might say, Francis wants a tea set. Clearly, she wants Thelma's tea set or she wants a blue china tea set or whatever it is. And then you could ask another question. Why can't Francis have what she wants? What's the obstacle standing in her way? Well, the kid might say she doesn't have enough money. Well, that's actually not true. She has plenty of money, but Thelma, it turns out, has deceived her. And so the problem, the obstacle to Francis getting what she wants is Thelma's deceit. The relationship between them is broken in some way. What a great little moment for a conversation. You could also answer the question, what Francis wants in a much different way. Francis also wants the kind of friendship with Thelma that is safe, right? 
She wants a safe friendship where you don't have to watch your back all the time and to, to wonder whether your best friend of a million years is going to stab you. Why <laughs> right. can't she have that? What's the, what's the obstacle in her way? Well, again, it's the fact that Thelma is dealing badly with Francis. And so in both of these cases, though the conflicts are different, they sort of belong in the same category. It's a man versus man conflict. As you're having this conversation about the protagonist and what she wants and why she can't have it, you begin to notice that those very same questions can be asked of Shakespeare's Hamlet. What does Hamlet want? Well, a couple different things. He wants to be avenged on his uncle who has murdered his father. But also, he wants to know for sure if his uncle has really murdered his father and if the ghost that has appeared to him in Act 1, Scene 1 is telling the truth or is even a real thing. Hamlet is facing a couple of different obstacles that are very, very similar, it turns out, to Francis's obstacles in A Bargain for Francis. And maybe even more importantly, the same questions asked between teacher and student can bring these things to light in both cases. So that if you learn to ask of Francis, who is the protagonist? What does she want? Why can't she have it? What kind of conflict is this? You're learning to ask those questions of any book you read. The method that we have developed takes the, all of the structural elements of fiction, including character and protagonist, which we just talked about briefly, and does the very same thing with all the other structural elements. For example, plot. What's the plot of a story? Well, it's the sequence of events that the story goes through from beginning to end. But importantly, every plot has what we call a climactic moment, a climax. Is there a point in the story when the main question of the story is answered or resolved? It turns out in A Bargain for Francis, there's this moment when Francis goes to the candy store after her sister Glory has said, it's happening to you again. Thelma is pulling a fast one on you. She's buying your tea set right now. And Francis goes to the candy store and sees it, sees it happen. Thelma is using the fruits of her ill-gotten gain to buy the tea set. And Francis turns away from the shop window and she says, mother told me to be careful about you, but now you better beware because I am going to win. And Francis's whole <laughs> mind changes and her whole perspective changes. And she turns the tables on Thelma and beats her in a battle of wills and drags her back to the bargaining table and says, you want to be friends with me or don't you? And it turns out that this moment is a real turning point in the story because Francis goes from being a naive, young badger that just gets taken advantage of at every turn to being a mature, worldly wise badger who knows how to handle people with dif that present difficult relationships. There's a climactic moment, in other words. Yeah. In Hamlet, you could say the same thing. What's the climactic moment of Hamlet? At what point does the main problem of the story get resolved? And if the main problem of the story is, will Hamlet take revenge on Claudius, his devious uncle? There is this moment in Act 3 of Hamlet where Hamlet is watching Claudius at prayer. And Claudius is praying, saying, oh, I'm guilty. I can't even confess because I've murdered my brother. And Hamlet is standing behind him with a dagger in his hand. And the question is, is he going to do it? Is he going to avenge himself on his father and kill his uncle? And he decides not to. He says, oh, no, I don't want to kill him while he's at prayer. Then he'll go to heaven. But I'd rather have him kill him in his bed and he can go to hell. And so Hamlet decides not to avenge himself and disaster eventually ensues. It's a climactic moment, a turning point. What we do with every element of fiction in our approach is ask the questions that force the student to think, how is this moment, how is this element of the story contributing to the overall theme? And we find that when we learn how to do it in Francis, we can also do it in Hamlet. 
The other elements that work, not just characters and not just plot. We talk about the setting of the story that way and mm-hmm. what happens in a, in a windy Dunsinane castle or whatever the castle is, Elson, I can't remember. And Francis, the story happens in a little badger neighborhood where everything is sunny and light. And those things have thematic significance, right? We talk about the conflict underlying a story. That's another one on the structural elements. But with every element, we approach it the very same way. Ask a set of kind of generic questions that make that structural element clear that can eventually later be applied to any work of literature at all. Yeah, that's amazing. And you know what's incredible is when you think about that is relating that to life. And we had Jonathan Brush on quite some time ago, um, a, a couple months ago, and he was talking about the importance of asking questions, like teaching our kids to ask questions about their lives. And as we think about asking all these questions, I, it, in turn, our kids, I think, naturally will learn to ask those questions about themselves. Yeah. Who is the protagonist in their lives? Absolutely. Is right. it you or is it God? I mean, who's really in control of this story, right? Absolutely. And what is the setting and and what, you know, what is that climactic moment? And there are many, of course, yeah. in our lives, because our, our lives are an ongoing story written by the Lord. Yeah. Uh, but there are so many things to consider as we're reading books that I think naturally our kids will start to ask questions about their own lives and about, you know, what what is my purpose? And that, that all really goes back to God created us on purpose for a purpose. Mm-hmm. What is my purpose on this life? Mm-hmm. And what will I do with this life in yeah. this setting and on this earth that God has placed me in? I agree. In fact, I would actually, one of the things I like to say when I'm talking about this subject is that the language of stories is in one profound sense, the language of God. Yeah. What we know about who God is and what he has to say to us comes to us in the form of a story. It, yeah. And it has a protagonist and it has an initial conflict. It has an obstacle between the the protagonist and his goal. It has a climactic moment. The shape of God's testimony to us is the shape of a story. And so in a sense, when we're learning how to read human stories, we're learning the map of the language of God. And the way you apply it just now to a kid thinking about his own life uh, is just another example of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And God is the perfect author of our lives. He is writing our story and... uh... Sometimes it's it's hard to watch these chapters roll by and you're yes, like, okay, is. can we end this chapter? This one is yeah. so hard. And then we get to another chapter and we see God's beauty and his glory and his faithfulness. Yeah, that's really true. Every story, it turns out, every story in the world, um, except for Goodnight Moon by Margaret Wise Brown. Oh. <laughs> I say nothing about that story. But every story after its climactic moment has what we call a denouement and a conclusion. It has a falling action. It has a section where the tension that was building in the first half of the story is resolved. And it comes down to a conclusion where, not, not in a human story, it's not necessarily that all is well, it's that all is settled. Yeah. And there is an element of that in the language of God, too, that we can take great comfort in. Right. In the end, though we are in the rising action still and we are in the conflict still, there will A, be a climactic moment and B, a denouement and C, a resolution where not only is all settled, but all is indeed well. Yeah, good stuff. We are out of time. So we're gonna come back on Wednesday. We're gonna talk about the Socratic method. I don't know what that is really. So we're gonna have Adam explain that to us. We're gonna talk about what makes a classic and how to encourage reluctant readers. We've got lots of fun things that we're gonna talk about throughout the rest of this week. So stay tuned, come back with us on Wednesday. Listen till the end of this podcast so you can hear a little clip from what we've got coming up next. Thank you guys so much for being with us. Adam, share with our listeners where they can find out more about you and Center for Lit. Centerforlit.com, C-E-N-T-E-R-F-O-R-L-I-T.com. 
All right. We'll put those links in the show notes. If you guys have not yet signed up for our newsletter, go to our website, schoolhouserocked.com. You can sign up there, keep in the loop on what we've got going on. And if you've not yet watched the movie Schoolhouse Rocked, you can find it there as well. You can stream it for free. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you back here on Wednesday. Bye. What we do at IEW is break through the, the noise of the grammar and the writing prompts, and we say, this is what you do, step by step. And I've witnessed it over and over again, both watching Andrew teach and hearing from parents, this is the best writing program. We've made it so easy and made it really affordable. So any mom can teach writing to their children using our course, and we guarantee it. To try three weeks of free lessons, visit IEW.com slash rocked. The author tells us right from the beginning, this is going to be a story about a guy who will not be reconciled to someone who has given him offense, and it destroys him. And we realize as we read the Iliad, oh, now I know why everybody reads the Iliad, because that theme the destructive effects of bitterness when you nurse it in your heart and refuse to be reconciled is relevant to everyone. Mm -hmm. We still do that today. I did that last week. That's the kind of thing that's human down at the very bottom. And furthermore, Homer tells that story in a, the, a compelling way that you do not soon forget. And so we come to this definition of a classic. A classic is a story that deals with a universally compelling theme in a compelling way. Content and style combine to make a classic.